Hello, I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. So last spring, in April of 2022, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration released a guidance plan aimed at the drug development industry. And this was to help companies, and I quote here, to enroll adequate numbers of participants in clinical trials from underrepresented racial and ethnic populations in the U.S. I've been hearing about the lack of gender representation in clinical trials, so this problem of lack of diversity makes sense. I guess we shouldn't be surprised if there's a way to discriminate. We'll do it in both gender and race. Uh, my cynic showing. But you're right, Nahal. There is this trend of Western medicine kind of focusing on what is sort of an idealized version of the human body, which is, not surprisingly, a young, healthy white male of European descent. And the assumption that naturally follows from that is that if a drug works well on that body— that it'll hopefully work well for everyone. Well, as somebody who is very definitely not a young male of European descent, I'm not sure that that will necessarily work for me. And I think your uh, thoughts here are very correct, Nahal, and needing to be grappled with currently in Western medicine. And this effort by the FDA is trying to address this issue. But there's also a question of depth here. What do you mean by depth? Well, I guess I could use just the correct word, and this is precision. So for the last 10 or so years, there's been this emerging approach to medicine called precision medicine. And this is basically the idea that every individual person is unique with their own backgrounds and genetics and environmental conditions and all the things. And in theory, we should be able to tailor medicine that precisely to each individual. So when I go see a doctor, they'll ask me about my age, my gender, whether I've had children, where I live, and that kind of thing. And then they'll be able to give me the precise treatment for whatever's going on with me. Exactly. The precise treatment, but also mitigate your risks too, right? Like if you and I have very different backgrounds, some drugs that'll be totally safe for me might have a higher risk of side effects for you. So there's two sides to this coin. I like this approach to bespoke medical care. Where do I sign up for it? Well, unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. So today we're going to look at this idea of precision medicine, the path towards it, and the barriers standing in the way that still need to be overcome. And I just want to start with a disclaimer that we're going to focus on the development of this scientific and medical capacity here. We're not going to talk about access, which is obviously a huge issue. And this episode is also going to be a little more U.S.-centric, but that's just because a lot of the research happening on precision medicine is happening in the U.S. so far. So how do we start? Well, the first thing you need to do if you're going to try and improve on something is figure out where you're at today. So I called up Jennifer Miller, a professor at the Yale School of Medicine in the U.S. and president of the nonprofit organization Bioethics International, who's been trying to get a baseline for where we are in the U.S. with diversity and participation in clinical trials. When you think about access to medicines and vaccines, you have to think about the role of the pharmaceutical industry because they sponsor 90 percent of the clinical research that supports FDA approval of new products. So they're a big player in patient and public health. And so it's really important that they're patient-centered and that they get their ethics right. So one of my projects is running the Good Pharma Scorecard, which is an index that ranks pharmaceutical companies and biotechnology companies 
on their bioethics and social responsibility performance annually. And one set of the measures that we look at is the fair inclusion of women, older adults, and racial and ethnic minoritized patients in clinical research. So basically, clinical trial diversity focused on oncology products. So explain the harm of not having a representative testing population versus the representative real population. Like, what is being lost with all these studies? Underrepresentation or a blatant exclusion of population groups raises questions about the generalizability of clinical trial data for those underrepresented or excluded groups. So if you're not included in the trial, it raises questions about whether the drug safety and efficacy information applies to patients like you. So we want to make sure that that clinical trial population represents the patients who are actually going to use a product in terms of sex, in terms of age, and other demographics. And countless studies have shown, including our own, that we tend to test new medicines and vaccines on patients who are healthier, younger, and more likely to identify as white and male than real-world patients in the U.S. who take medicines. And there's also global health equity concerns around who gets to benefit from clinical research, who gets represented in the data. So how bad is this problem, this disparity in the data? What do the actual numbers look like in terms of the lack of diversity in clinical trials? Our team, one of the first studies where we went in and actually benchmarked the performance of research sponsors on fairly including women, older adults, and racial and ethnic minoritized patients in trials. And what we found is nobody can really answer your question outside of the FDA Hmm. because we have a significant lack of transparency around who's participating in research. So we actually often don't know the sex, age, or racial and ethnic identity of participants. More recently now, we tend to know the sex, but we don't know the age and racial and ethnic identity. So is this because of the data sharing requirements? The FDA just doesn't require most of these clinical trials to publish that data? In the U.S., there is a law that requires trial registration and results reporting, but it's arguably narrow. So a lot of trials are not subject to mandatory registration and results reporting. Even if they are subject to mandatory registration and results reporting, that doesn't mean that the demographics of clinical trial participants are among that information. And there's no legal requirement to publish the results of clinical trials in the medical literature, like in New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA. So the first thing we did is we went in and we said, for all of the pivotal trials supporting FDA approval of oncology products, focusing on novel oncology products approved by the FDA between 2012 and 2017, the first thing we noticed was a lack of transparency. So while 100% of pharmaceutical companies disclose the sex of trial participants, so we know the proportion of female and male participants, only 40% disclosed age and the proportion of older adult participants, and only 24% um, the race and ethnic identity of trial participants. And that's just transparency, right? And so then for those that we could find demographic information, we actually went and benchmarked representation, right? Do the trial participants represent the demographics of the patients with the disease or condition targeted by a study? Jennifer explained that there are a couple different ways you can construct a representative study. And the generally accepted best practice is to make sure that the demographics of the trial participants mirror the demographics of the patient population. That is, the people you are testing look like the people who actually get the disease. You would construct a participation to prevalence ratio. So you would compare the percent of participants in a 
gastric cancer study who are women to the percent of U.S. patients with gastric cancer who are women. And you want that proportion to sort of line up. So you want a participation to prevalence ratio of 0.8 to 1.2. Based on that ratio, were women proportionately represented in the studies? 56% of sponsors adequately included women in clinical trials, but that means that 44% underrepresented women in comparison to their representation in the patient population with the disease or condition targeted by a trial. So that means we enrolled too many men and not enough women. Dan, I didn't know it was so hard to get this data. Yeah, it's kind of wild, right? But I guess it isn't surprising that when we did get the data, the results weren't exactly uplifting, you know. There's a reason we had all heard about these issues. So are they trying to figure out how to bring minorities into this research? Yes, absolutely. That would be the goal, to bring more diverse participants into these clinical trials. And some places, unfortunately, it's just not even on their radar, whether they're designing the clinical trials or doing the studies to actually make that effort. But in some places, people are taking those steps and are looking at this. So I spoke with a researcher who runs clinical trials herself at a university that is trying to address this problem to see what it's like working on the ground. My name is Julia Liu. I am professor of medicine and chief of gastroenterology at Morehouse School of Medicine. I see patients with digestive conditions and I also do research in patients with digestive conditions. Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, is one of 101 historically black colleges and universities in the U.S. Being a research scientist as well as a physician, Julie explained that she came to Morehouse with some assumptions about black patients. Basically, when I started at Morehouse, my assumption was what I was reading in the literature that Black patients don't want to participate in clinical research because of Mm -hmm. historic reasons. There is Tuskegee study, lack of trust or mistrust. The now infamous Tuskegee syphilis study was conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service from 1932 to 1972. 600 black men in rural Alabama in the southern U.S. were enlisted in a study to examine the natural course of untreated syphilis in African-American men. Infected subjects were not told they had syphilis, nor were they informed that the disease could be transmitted to others through sexual intercourse. In addition, the public health service didn't give these infected patients penicillin when it became available in the mid-1940s. This is in direct conflict with U.S. law that requires the treatment of venereal disease, and this penicillin was withheld until the study finally ended in 1972, only after news report brought its illegal and unethical practices to light. It is estimated that more than 100 of the subjects died of tertiary syphilis. And the reason this is relevant to the story today is that this study has long been cited as a source of understandable deep distrust among Black Americans when it comes to medical research. And so when I got here, that was my underlying assumption. And I bought into that, okay? I'm not Black or white. All I know is this is what is the belief out there. Yeah, so totally. when I started at Morehouse, I had no idea what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm a scientist. I'm here to basically do a social experiment. And my patients, I know, trust me. They love me. They mm-hmm, respect mm-hmm. me because they know I take good care of them. Trust should not be an issue, right? But sure. I don't know because of the historic issues, how much patient recruitment I'd be able to do. When I got here, the first study I'd started on is the colon cancer screening, because Mm -hmm. that is the lowest hanging fruit, because we know Black people get colon cancer. 
Julia's study was assessing the effectiveness of a blood-based test that researchers hoped could one day replace the colonoscopy as a means of screening for colon cancer. You want to see the, you know, performance characteristics of this test. This is like their, you know, uh, pivotal trial to get FDA approval. So when I started, the assumption is that Black patients probably don't want to participate in trials. So, mm-hmm. you know, most of the studies I've done, uh, 50% of the people will qualify. And of those, 50% of the people will want to participate. So, you know, roughly 25% of eligible participants will. But because mm-hmm. of the historic mistrust, I thought maybe we can only get 10%. I would expect that number to be closer to a quarter, like 25%. In non-Black populations based on your traditional right. experience, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Okay, yeah. But that assumption was incorrect. So I hired mm-hmm. a research nurse and I started her as part-time working three days a week because I thought, well, if you only have one patient who will agree every other day, why do you need a full-time person. What does she do the other time? You don't want someone to be completely discouraged because it's very discouraging when everyone says no to you. So I hire uh, this nurse. Her name is Hope. Mm. And it turned out like just about everyone I asked said, oh yeah, sure. I would love to do that. Yeah, I'll do it. And I had the same response as the white patients. So half of the eligible patients all agreed, you know? So we, let's say- yeah, so it's, it's exactly the same. The black patients are no different than the white mm. patients. Julie was surprised by this experience because it challenged some of the assumptions that were pervasive throughout medicine. So she decided to conduct a survey of patients. Her goal was to learn more about patients' attitudes on and openness to medical research. Tell me what you learned from this survey and this work you did. Yeah, so the survey that I did, I basically went to a inflammatory bowel disease patient education conference. So I am also involved with a patient advocacy organization because mm-hmm. there are a lot more Black patients with IBD, inflammatory mm-hmm. bowel disease now than, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. So there is a lack of education of these patients. There is lack of social support, emotional support. So we asked these patients for at this education conference, the respondents were 85% Black. Mm-hmm. And out of these patients, 83% knew about the Tuskegee study. Mm-hmm. But only 20% of these patients thought the Tuskegee study would impact their participation in research. What I find lacking is just outreach. You don't see mm-hmm. a whole bunch of you know, top researchers in these minority serving institutions trying to understand these patients. How can you get more Black patients into trials? You need to go to where these patients are and enroll them there. You know, Mm. you need to care for them and you need to enroll them there. Because if you don't care for the patients, I doubt that, you know, someone just walking up to you on the street say, hey, you want to participate in research? (laughs) Sure, 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 sure. From her own experience, as well as the survey, it became clear to Julia that trust in a medical caregiver is really important to increasing participation in clinical trials. So one way to improve diversity in clinical trials is to bring these trials to caregivers that are working in underserved communities. We need to get healthcare providers who are interested in research to go Mm. to minority serving institutions or at least help these providers in the minority serving institutions and equip them with Mm. research staff who can help them. 
you know, Dan, in the work that we do at The Conversation, we regularly work with a lot of smart people, scholars and researchers all over the world. It's really unusual and frankly impressive to hear someone say, I was totally wrong in my assumptions. I admire Julia's vulnerability here. I do as well. And one of the things that I kept on returning to during this conversation and thinking about it was that it's, of course, not Julia's fault she was thinking this way. It's this built-in bias. And it was good that she did that follow-up study to really dig into this question. And she didn't just look at the one thing. She did the survey and really got to the bottom of this issue, at least in her particular town and in her particular situation. But the result was, I think, good that she could show that, yes, Black patients are interested in participating in clinical trials, and the research confirmed that. Okay, so they've realized that there's a problem, they're doing a bad job, and as Jennifer said earlier, they don't even know how bad a job they're doing. Yeah, it sounds really sad and hopeless when we think about it in those terms, but... Jennifer did note that there are some things to be hopeful about. In particular, her team is conducting another study that is going to not only try and quantify the lack of diversity in certain clinical trials and funders and drug companies, but will also look to the ones that are doing a good job at getting representative participants and to try and learn the best practices from these groups in the hopes of being able to broaden it out. So the first thing we wanted to do was define what good looks like, right? What does good representation look like? What is fair inclusion of women, older adults, and racial and ethnic minoritized patients look like in research? So the first thing we did is set out to develop accountability measures. This is what good looks like, and now we're going to use these measures to benchmark the performance of companies and new medicines and vaccines and, and trials every year, right, year after year, so we can ideally capture progress over time and incentivize progress where needed. So the first thing we did is we set those measures and they're a composite measure of first transparency. We evaluate whether research sponsors are disclosing the sex, age and race and ethnic identity of trial participants. Then the second piece is we go and actually benchmark representation, assessing whether trial participant demographics represent more than 80% of the US patient population for study conditions. And as I mentioned, that's calculated by dividing the percentage of study participants in each demographic subgroup by the percentage of the U.S. cancer population with the studied condition per group. And then we construct a composite fair inclusion measure, which is the average of the transparency and the representation score. And you mentioned that when you looked, you started doing this, that uh, a lot of these companies, a lot of these trials weren't doing so good. So how many of these studies are run up to your standards? 4%. 4%? <laughs> yeah, 4%. Wow. So that's not a lot of percent. It's not where it needs to be, no. But what that 4% does tell us is that it's possible to get this right. And so now, based on a grant from the FDA that we got, we're conducting a positive deviance study, which means you go in and you identify the leaders, right, the 4% who are consistently getting it right year after year. And then you go in and study, how did they do it? What are the successful proven practices that they're using that can be generalized and implemented across the ecosystem to produce similar results? Were there any kind of like emergent themes that you saw within these groups? And how did they do this? Like, was there something different or was it just like they weren't lazy? They took the time to find the right kind of people to involve in the study. Like what separated these groups from other people? So... The study that we've published so far benchmarks performance. So that's the one that showed you know, which companies are excelling at representing women, older adults, 
and patients identifying as Black and Latino, as well as even capturing patients who identify as Native Hawaiian and American Indian. Um, the next study that we're doing now is the one that is going in and doing the, the interviews with the companies to see how they did it. There's hypotheses out there of barriers and facilitators for improving representation and trial enrollment. And one of the big ones is how you select your sites, where you run your trials, because there's a known rural and urban gap in trial access, meaning we tend to test new medicines and vaccines in large academic medical centers like the one I work in, right? Large academic medical centers and in major cities and on the coasts of the U.S. So there are rural urban gaps and community hospital academic medical center gaps. So we want to basically want to conduct more community-based hospital research or decentralized trials. And then there are other theories like provide transportation and childcare so that more diverse groups can afford to participate in trials. So were you surprised by this 4% result or was this kind of, you know, you were a bit of a cynic when you went into this and this is what you were expecting? Well, I went into this to set a baseline score and with the mindset of let's try and improve things. And so what I'm more looking forward to is repeating the study every year and tracking progress over time. So, you know, it was less about scrutinizing the 4% and more about figuring out how we can bump those numbers up. So when we first started talking about this, Dan, it felt really bleak, but it seems that we're sort of headed in the right direction. Has there been any more support from the government or funding agencies? So there is actually some good news to report here in terms of policy and government support. So I mentioned that guidance plan from the Food and Drug Administration that was published in spring of 2022. Well, in December of last year, U.S. President Joe Biden signed a big spending bill into law and included within this bill was a provision mandating for the first time that clinical trial sponsors, mostly drug companies, have to develop diversity action plans. So in these action plans, they must set enrollment targets and explain clearly how they plan to actually meet those targets. It's actually a requirement, and that's a big change. Forgive my cynicism here, but I also do feel like that's a good place to start. I also hope that as we become more aware about discrimination in medicine on the basis of race and sex, we'll start to see better outcomes as patients. Exactly. The science seems to be changing along with the social perspectives, and we hope to get towards better health outcomes, right? But at the beginning of this episode, we started talking about precision medicine, more than just looking at gender and race, but each person's genetic history, environmental history, really giving precise medicine. So I like this idea about personalized, bespoke medical treatment, but I feel like I don't quite get what precision medicine is. No, it's a super vague term. And thankfully, I got to speak with one of the founders of precision medicine, Keith Yamamoto. Keith is the Vice Chancellor for Science Policy and Strategy and the Director of Precision Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco in the U.S. And might as well let him define precision medicine for you because he's going to do a better job than I ever could. Precision medicine is not a field of science or medicine. It's really an approach to doing uh, biomedical research and um, healthcare and health 
advice that is grounded in the notion that we can be precise about giving people advice about their health if we could somehow pull together all information about biological processes and biological systems. So uh, not just studies of people or groups of people, but in fact, all the work that goes on in, uh, in basic research laboratories like mine, studying uh, fruit flies and bacteria and yeast. And all of that information, if pulled together and then somehow platformed in a way that correlations could be detected uh, between the different information layers, then we could actually achieve an understanding of health and disease to the extent that we could give advice to Dan Marino, not people like Dan. Keith explained that this idea of precision medicine grew out of a study that he did in 2011 that looked at whether it might be more effective to classify diseases in terms of mechanism, i.e. what's causing the symptoms, rather than just looking at the symptoms themselves. There are diseases that have multiple causes behind them. And so simply just saying this is cancer, this is diabetes, is not enough. There are also mechanisms that cause diseases that don't look like each other. So it means that people that are trying to understand a disease like polycystic kidney disease and people that are studying a developmental deformation that leads to too many fingers on the hand could be studying actually exactly the same mechanism. This change in how medical providers and researchers think about disease has affected how doctors and scientific researchers understand the impact of not only a patient's genetic makeup, but also their life experiences. So you know that every one of your cells has a copy of your DNA, your genome in it. And the genes that are expressed along that string of information differ between brain cells and muscle cells and nerves and bone, right? So during development, a bunch of switches are thrown that say, oh, this is going to be a brain cell. Here's the set of genes that are going to be expressed. So that's one level of differentiation. But the other one is that the expression of the genes are not hardwired. So this is the set of genes that are going to be expressed. But the way that they're expressed, the extent they're expressed, when they're expressed and when they're not expressed, is determined by a set of antennae that are hanging off of every cell and that are resident within the cells that are on the lookout for signals that change the way the genes are expressed. And those signals are responsive to everything about your life, how much sleep you get, if you're under a lot of stress, right? If you live in an area with polluted air and so forth. And so your genes are different. Your risks for disease and the progression of disease, if you get one, is different than the next person down the line. And that would be true even if you had an identical twin brother with the same genome, but your different experiences make your genes express in different ways. So if you get a disease, what happens in that disease is going to be a function of all the stuff that went before. So now you can see that there's lots of complexity there. And when I say, let's gather together all the information about biological systems and then stack them in a Google's map-like way and different kinds of information, and then find correlations between pieces of information on different layers. That's called a knowledge network. 
So if we built a knowledge network of disease, or human biology, if you want to put it, go back into the healthy side, and then ask, what goes wrong that leads to this disease? The more we can understand that, we can even be predictive and say, uh-oh, you got a problem, pal. Let me give you some advice. You know, If you get the symptoms, this is the drug you should take. You shouldn't take that drug because that's for you, that's not so good. For the next guy over, it might be great, right? And we can even do better than that. So where we've gotten with precision medicine in the more than a decade that we've been doing this is that we can actually be predictive about certain diseases that heretofore we had to just wait for symptoms to show up. And you know that by the time symptoms show up, you got a problem. If you are able to make predictive conclusions about a patient based on their genetics, the environment that they grew up in, and their life circumstances, precision medicine can lead to preventative care. So it stands to reason that if you had 10 pieces of information about making a decision about whether somebody's going to get a disease or what it's going to be like if you get it and so forth. And somebody said, well, I can give you another 10. And you say, great, I'll take it. I'll make a better decision based on those 20 pieces of information, even if at the end of the day there's 150 pieces of information we need to know to be really exact about this. So precision medicine doesn't have to be done to be useful and successful. Right? So as we go, we can make better and better inferences. Fundamentally, this seems like a a computation problem and a data problem, right? We're talking machine learning, artificial networks, neural networks, and association generation, essentially. Exactly. This is a huge computation problem. So what we've done at UCSF is to build a knowledge network in which we began with a large number of publicly available databases of all chemical structures, all approved drugs. Oh, you're really going all knowledge. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Sequences of all of the microorganisms that comprise our microbiomes that are in and on us all the time and affect our health in profound ways. Various kinds of adverse drug responses. So I think there's something like 50 huge databases that have been pulled together on a single platform so that we can, we can layer the information in that way, uh, various kinds of symptoms and so forth. And so then we're able to plug into that big network the information about you and be able to make a call based on what we know about people that have these various experiences to make a prediction. It seems like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here, right? There can be massive increases to a broad swath of the population's health outcomes if we take this approach and sink a little bit of money into it, of course. But it doesn't feel like we need to discover some new material or understand some new genetic mechanism or this, that, or the other, right? There's enough knowledge and enough ability here. We just got to do it. Is that a fair way to put it? I think it is fair to say that with what we know now, if we can then now build this network in an operational way, the impact on people's health will be enormous. I think that's true. That if we stopped all discovery today, but succeeded at building this system, then it could have a, it could have a big effect. I think that's true, right? But in fact, the amount that we still don't know about biological systems is still vastly more than what we do know. So there will be a real limit if we would stop now. But here is where we run into that problem we talked about back in the first half of the episode. As Keith says, more data means better outcomes. 
But as we know, the data on minorities is woefully lacking, and most clinical studies are not even transparent about just how incomplete they are. That bias data poses a real problem for the knowledge network that precision medicine requires. On this question of equity, does precision medicine sidestep the problem in a way that, and I don't mean that in like a avoids the problem, but like kind of just skirts around it and solves it in a, in a way, or does it, do we still need to deal with these problems in a more head-on way in order to have precision medicine that is equitable? Precision medicine will fail if we don't address those issues in a head-on way. We talk about data sets and we talk about unconscious bias and we talk about complex matters that are thrown into a big bucket called social determinants of health, where anybody with any kind of reasonable level of knowledge would acknowledge right away that if you live in an area with polluted air, your health is going to be compromised in ways that somebody who lives out of the in fresh air is not. It doesn't take much of a jump to say, if you live in a rural area, you're going to have more health problems than if you live in a city that's close to a major medical center. And if you live in a rural area, you may not have internet access. And so your ability to do telehealth will be compromised and so forth. And so there's all sorts of social determinants without even beginning to get into race and poverty and so forth. So when I talk about building this knowledge network that all information goes into, you, know, you can say, oh, yeah, not, you know, we all nod our heads when we look at the genome sequence and epigenetics and so forth. But then what do we do about being quantitative and getting a layer of information that looks at some of these complicated social determinants? Right. How do we build that into the knowledge network? And are, can we succeed in precision medicine if we fail at that? And are you guys doing that? I imagine you are. We're working hard on that. But are we there? No. I think that frontier of getting the data sets clean and being able to build social determinants of health into these data networks in ways that will be informative, I think those are the big challenges we have in front of us. One of the things that Keith talked about was that he isn't so much concerned with whether this approach of precision medicine is possible. He thinks it is. But rather, a bigger challenge seems to be a lack of will to change the system. Our abilities to do this, or I would even go as far as to say kind of willingness to do this when we get to some of the demographics like ancestry and race and ethnicity are not as good and have been, in fact, flawed. You may know of the case of the pulse oximeter. Uh, you know, that little thing that the doctor puts on your finger to measure your oxygen tension? That technology is 40 years old, and it's actually been long known that it gives false readings for people of color. And people of color, the readings are given as higher than they actually are. So it meant that people of color with COVID-19 who were being examined to see what their oxygen tensions were, were getting false high levels and weren't being treated. So here's a technology that's 40 years old. It's long been known that skin tone is going to tweak the readings. But people went out and used them and it all went fine until we said, how come people of color are doing worse with COVID-19? Because they weren't being treated, they weren't being put on respirators when they needed to be, and so forth. So that's when I say you really wonder whether we have the will to be able to do the right things here. Mistakes like that are very revealing and concerning. 
Not only could precision medicine improve the efficacy of individual treatments for individual patients, it could also improve the healthcare system overall. This is because precision medicine can allow healthcare providers to better manage their resources and eliminate a lot of the trial and error that takes place in the normal practice of medicine today. Medical costs are this completely unsustainable at the rate that they're going up. And I would argue that uh, precision medicine is uh, at least the only way I can, my imagination may be limited, but the only way that I can imagine that we can address this. Why do I say that? I say that because what precision medicine will do, for example, is to determine what drugs will help people and what drugs won't. If they knew that this drug will help Dan and that drug won't, they're not going to allow a prescription to be written for the drug that won't help you. And they certainly won't allow it to be written for a drug that will hurt you. If they knew that an MRI is going to help you, then they'll pay for that. So they'll be able to be precise about who gets what drugs, who gets what tests, right? And so costs will go down. In addition to the benefits to patients, precision medicine will allow medical research, like clinical trials we've been talking about a lot in this episode, to be more successful and more cost-efficient too. Clinical trials cost an enormous amount of money. And drug companies, when they price their drugs, they can only make a profit on drugs that the FDA approves. But the money that they make have to pay for all of the drugs that failed. So if a drug fails in phase three, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe a billion. And so the drug that gets approved, they've got to charge enough that they recoup that billion dollars. So if we have precision medicine and we know more about the mechanism of the disease we're going after, then the composition of the trial cohort will be able to set in such a way that you pull together the patients where the drug candidate that you're making will be helpful, right? So the trial will be smaller, it'll be shorter in duration, and it'll be more likely to succeed. So in this episode, we've been focusing more on the science and the policy and the process of precision medicine, but access is an important part of this too. Without access, it doesn't matter if you've got the best treatment on earth. If people can't get it, then it's not a very effective treatment. And Keith spoke about how precision medicine, by improving the efficiency of medicine and medical research, could help improve access too. Instead of making this new tool where some company thinks they're going to be able to make a lot of money, or maybe not making something because the company thinks, cool idea, but there's no market. The only people that's going to help are people that don't have any money, so we're not going to do it. Or we're not going to make a new antibiotic because people take antibiotics for three days and they're done. I want something where the person has to buy this new drug every day for the rest of their lives. Or let's go ahead and make this drug. It's going to cost a million dollars a dose, but let's do it. So don't we need to be rethinking that a bit and think about doing things that will be accessible to all? that will provide health and health care for everyone, not just the people with a lot of resources, and not step in the kinds of holes that we saw with the pulse oximeter. So I think we really need to be doing both things that will change the way that we think about the way that we do medicine and develop the kinds of tools that will allow it to be done well.
That will do it for this episode. A huge thanks to everyone we spoke to this week, Jennifer Miller, Julia Liu, and Keith Yamamoto, as well as Laura Wilson from Australian National University. And a shout out to Vivian Lamb, my colleague at The Conversation, for hooking us up with Julia. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandy does our transcripts. Mand Marawani is the show's executive producer, and I am Dan Marino. I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thanks for listening. 